Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Drop pass, drives over McDavid down the middle. Wrist shot. Score! Hunter McDavid just like that. Smith, three clubbing right hands. Right hands have it. Big right-handed shot from Mike Smith. This is the battle of Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Brought to you by Cam LLP Injury Lawyers. Representing injured people in Edmonton and across Alberta since 1962. On 6.30 Chad. Certainly a different Labor Day this year as we ride out the pandemic and for fans of the Canadian Football League and the Edmonton football team, another layer of unusualness added on to that. No Labor Day Classic, no game in Calgary between Edmonton and the Stampeders, one of the greatest rivalries in sports. We do not get to enjoy it today. It has gone Calgary's way the last few years, but uh, man, certainly feels different not coming on after that game to break it down and bring you some other sports stories. But we do have a best of edition of Inside Sports tonight. Hope you've had a great long weekend. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thanks a lot for tuning in and we'll bring you some of our favorite interviews from the last few weeks here on Inside Sports. We've had a lot of great stories. Uh, This story is one of triumph and also one of sadness. It was 40 years ago last week in 1980 that the great Terry Fox made this announcement. Yesterday I was running and I had noticed a little bit of hardness in breathing and at the end, near the end of the day, 18 miles, um, I was coughing and choking and had pain in my neck and my chest and I did three more miles and I, had to, I decided I had to go see the doctor. And it was discovered then that uh, I had primary, originally I had primary cancer in my knee three and a half years ago. And uh, the cancer had spread. And now I've got cancer in my lungs. And uh, we gotta go home and and try and do some more treatment. But, uh, And we reflect on that with Leslie Scrivener, who wrote a book about Terry Fox. It came out in 1981, and in 1980, she was working for the Toronto Star and was assigned to cover Terry Fox and his Marathon of Hope. My editor said, there's a, there's a young man who's running across Canada on one leg. Find out if he's for real. And when the uh, Toronto Star switchboard operators tracked him down and come by chance, Newfoundland, you know, you know, our operators were so great. They just called all over until they found him. We didn't know where he was. And when I heard that voice, so young, so hopeful, 
so happy to communicate his story. I was a believer. And, you know, you know, in journalism, we're supposed to be um, objective, detached. But with Terry Fox, it was impossible because he was so authentic. Um, he was so... All of the wonderful things we've written about him are true. He was a... I, I think he was good in his bones. And that was transmitted in the way he spoke, so simply, so naturally... And, you know, I, I believed, as did so many, that um, I would see Terry dip his foot in, at English Bay in Vancouver, and we would all celebrate this tremendous, tremendous athletic and humanitarian accomplishment. So when you first got to meet him in, in person, then he, he, was, he was on the road, it was, it, the marathon was going on? Yeah, and they'd had a few rough months uh, through the Maritimes and in Quebec. And um, Bill Vickers, who was working for the Cancer Society, said, we've got to make a big splash in Ontario. So I first saw Terry just as he was crossing the border from Quebec into Ontario. And I've got to tell you, he looked like the loneliest man in Canada. Um his stature, even though he was, you know, average or above average in height, he looked, there was this smallness of youth, you know, the, the, the stature, everything seemed shrunk by, you know, the vastness of our country. One small, one young man running across this vast country. And I, I was just so overcome by his, uh, the enormity of his task. Um, when I finally got to talk to him, I, of course I encountered this very sweet-natured, um, as I said earlier, natural, friendly, um, just absolutely lovely human being. That's not to say he wasn't without flaws. He was not, he was, um, he was a, a full human being with all the great things and the shortcomings. I'm wondering, and I apologize if this sounds like kind of an odd question, but I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. Did he really grasp the gravity and the magnitude of what he was doing running across the, I mean, obviously he knew it was a big deal, but I mean, like that's, yeah. <laughs> you I, know what I mean? I, what no, I understand because, you know, at first it was, you know, just the sheer, first of all, it was the, um, the drive to help others, to help cancer patients. He'd seen so much suffering that drove him. He was an athlete. He identified as an athlete. Um, so there was the, uh, the, the physical, uh, strength and skill needed to get himself across he had he had both of those right from the start um he always described it as an adventure but i think as he came through ontario where people and he saw that people were now lining up on the road to wait to see him and to contribute money to the um to the marathon of hope uh, for cancer research, as he saw that, something deepened in him. It was more than an athletic and humanitarian endeavor. It was something that was, um, that he was drawing in all Canadians. All of us were becoming part of this. 
Um, and that I think that deepened and deepened his understanding. Um, there's a new book out that just came out this week called Forever Terry, and in it, Doug Allward, his faithful friend, says um, at the end of his contribution to this to this book, he says Terry was willing to die. He was convinced Terry was willing to die to save others. And I think the enormity of that became clear here here in Ontario as he as as people gathered around him and that's when he said even if I don't make it which is an unusual thing for an athlete to say even if I don't make it this has got to keep going without me. Yeah, that's but, amazing. Sorry, Leslie. No, and I I often wondered uh, you know, your question is an excellent question because I wondered, did he actually know that he could lose his life doing this? And if he did, that certainly didn't inhibit him from taking one, you know, from giving everything that was in his bones and in his body and in his heart. You mentioned that, you know, he just so badly wanted to help other people. Do you think he would have believed that 40 years later, and obviously beyond, Canadians would still be talking about him and inspired by him? Or do you think he was so focused on reaching the West Coast for a finish line that maybe he didn't think about a long-term impact? You know, Terry was such an innocent young man. um, And he was almost without... Ego. He had no pride. When I say he didn't have pride, he didn't. He didn't think. I don't think he realized how outstanding he was. He was such a modest person. What was important is that the um, that his message that we can all contribute. Uh, we can all work together to beat this monstrous disease. I think he may have hoped that. Um, would he have, because he was such a modest person, would he have really believed that there would be millions of people around the world, and I mean around the world, from Abu Dhabi to Cuba, running and Terry Fox runs? I don't think he would have anticipated that. And, you know, in Cuba, sometimes a million people would go out to run for Terry Fox. A million. Wow. Yeah, that's and I, and I should get this in here, Leslie, while I can. Uh, the virtual run this year, Sunday, September 20th, terryfox.org. One day your way. Uh, honor Terry Fox in, in your own way. So I want people to remember that. Leslie Scrivener is joining us on Inside Sports. Terry Fox, his story um, is, is the book. So when you were assigned, and this was the Toronto Star at the time, right? That's right. Well, did you stay out on the road or did you go out and check in periodically? How did your yeah. assignment work? Yeah, I would I would check in periodically. So we were in touch um, every week, at least once or twice a week, um, until he got to Ontario. And then I'd make um, I spent a few days with him on the road when he came in, and that was just a tremendous, you know, almost life changing, life affirming experience. And then as he got closer to Ontario, I'd 
I'd, um, you know, drop in. One day he was bleeding horribly, and the star thought, oh, this is the end. And I raced up to um, the, the holiday area around here, Cottage Country, uh, near Gravenhurst. And he just about laughed me out of the room. He said, are you kidding me? He said, if, if I had to stop every time I have a, a blister or I'm bleeding, I wouldn't get anywhere. So blood running down his leg was no big deal. So, um, yes, I would, I would pop in, I would pop in and out to see him. And um, I got to tell you, it's just, I can see these things now. I'm sitting here in Toronto. I can see them as clearly as if they're happening in front of me now. Yeah. Leslie, do you remember the last time you talked to him? I do. Um, it was Christmas, um, the year, a couple months before he died. And I was um, interviewing him at his home in Port Coquitlam, at his family's home. And, you know, this robustly healthy, beautiful, suntanned, you know, sunburned young man had um, shrunk uh, in, in size, physical size. He was very thin. He moved slowly. His skin was pale. Um, and it was a Christmas. And um, his mom and his family invited me to, to join them on one of their, uh, for, uh, you know, a social evening at home. And the last time I saw Terry, he, um, he quietly left the gathering and walked down the hall to his bedroom. And it was just like a little kid, you know, going off to bed, pulling his sweater up over his shoulders and his head into the bedroom and to close the door. And that was it. Yeah. Um, and for, you know, for for a boy, a young man with such um, you know physical strength and um, so much power in him, um, this must have been very very hard. Leslie, thanks for for sharing that. And uh, you know, listeners are, are, are writing in here. Derek just texted and he says, "For anyone who's ever wondered what true grit is, look no further than Terry Fox. His grit and tenacity knew no bounds. He was the true embodiment of what every Canadian should be." And I mean, he's he to me, he is in his own category. And I was talking about this last night. And as a sportscaster, people want me to to rank this and rank that on the greatest Canadian and the greatest athlete. And what he was doing was an athletic achievement. I mean, just running a marathon a day, even if you haven't had an amputation, is incredible. And what what he was doing and why he was doing it. So I I can't look at it as just an athletic feat either. I mean, it probably is the greatest athletic achievement in Canadian history, but it's so much more than that. It is. Isn't it interesting with these these deep layers of meaning on top of this outstanding athletic um, accomplishment? I mean, I was just reading today about a marathon runner who said about Terry, she said, nobody, nobody runs 300 kilometers a week. And just think of all the marathon runners we know. What do they do? One, two, three, five in a lifetime? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing. and that was important to him. You know, he won the Lou, Lou Marsh Award, and um, he wanted that. I mean, he was very modest and didn't want much in life, but he did want to be recognized as an athlete. But, you know, but as they say, the depth and the complexity and the humanitarian aspect of giving to others layered on top of that. 
Yeah, well said. Um, your book, uh, Terry Fox, uh, his story, uh, still uh, widely read and widely published and available. What, did, did, it, did it come out in 81 or when did it first come out? Yeah, it came out. Terry died in June, I think June, was it July? And it came out just shortly after that. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, gosh, I mean, I just thought that's just, yeah. He died on June 28th. And um, the book came out just probably a couple of weeks later. But, you know, he was so ill. We would talk on the phone, and he was so ill toward the end. You know, I, I asked him to take a look at it, and what did he think? And, you know, he was just so far past caring about the words. And, you know, it was, you know, his life was in the balance. You know, there are statues of Terry around the country, streets and, and schools and things like that named after him. It's funny, Leslie, and somebody just texted in about this as well. And I was talking to a couple other people earlier today and said, why do we not have Terry Fox on money? Like, is that the, <laughs> I don't know oh, if that's the ultimate is, way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there is a, a movement that he be considered, I think someone might have to correct me on this, uh, on the new, is it a $5 bill? His name has been put forward. Oh, good. Um, um, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't know where that stands. But wouldn't okay. that be great? Just, uh, I mean, he's on the loony though already. He was on a commemorative loony. Right. But, yes, but he's not on a permanent like. He's not on a bill. Not on a bill, right. Uh, yeah, Terry Fox's uh, story from February pushing to be him on the $5 bill. Well, there should be some, yeah. something like that where everybody sees him on a daily basis. I think that would be appropriate. Well, you know, here it's, uh, in Toronto at Pearson Airport, when you come when you come in, they have these big po- welcoming people from um, abroad. Um, there's a giant, giant picture of Terry. And I thought, well, what a terrific welcome um, to the visitors and newcomers to Canada. And what a statement that he is one of our great ones. Well said. Uh, Leslie, I, w- I wish we had a little more time. Uh, maybe we can talk again. But I, I, I just uh, so appreciate uh, you coming on with your, your memories and, and talking about Terry Fox. Um, just a, a, an incredible Canadian. Words don't do him justice. Your book, Terry Fox, His Story. Thank you so much for checking in tonight. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for calling. Man, that's great to catch up with Leslie Scrivener, Terry Fox, his story, a book you can still find, came out in 1981. Really appreciate her perspective. It's the best of Inside Sports on 630 Chat. Well, we have a lot of cool conversations to come tonight. It's the best of Inside Sports. My name is Reed Wilkins. Appreciate you checking out the show. We'll be back with a uh, live show tomorrow. Later on in the week, we'll get into live play-by-play of the NHL Conference Finals series. Still to come, Mark Cohan, former commissioner of the Canadian Football League. You'll hear from Edmonton's Manny Viveros, now the head coach of the Henderson Silver Knights in the American Hockey League and one of the all-time greats in curling. Well, the greatest, let's just call him the greatest, Kevin Martin will reflect on one of the biggest innovations in the game from the past several years. Also, a really cool conversation with Amanda Rummery, an Edmontonian who's now the top female Paralympic sprinter in Canada. All to come, best of inside sports on 6.30 Chet.
On August 17th, the 2020 CFL season was cancelled. A couple days later, I spoke to former CFL Commissioner Mark Cohan. You know, obviously as a fan, as a former commissioner, obviously very saddened. Uh, but then I put my commissioner hat on and I, I think it was absolutely the right decision. You know, the right decision for the safety of the players, the right decision for, um, you know, the fans wouldn't be in the stands, but for the safety of our fans. Uh, then ultimately, you know, it gives an opportunity for the league to pause, to step back, and to really think about the future. I mean, I think the last time a Grey Cup was canceled was 1919 during, during World War One and the Spanish flu. Um, you know, we've been through this before, and I think we will overcome. It was interesting. Today, I was wearing a CFL t-shirt, and I also went to a Big Ten school. I was wearing the Northwestern Wildcats hat, and I guess it was my day of mourning uh, today wearing both of those. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it for sure. A, a lot of a lot of discussion with the about this maybe being an opportunity. I, I talked to Len Rhodes last night, and he talked about how the NHL came out of 0405 where they lost the whole season, and he said maybe this is a chance for some new ideas and some innovation and some new energy for the Canadian Football League. I mean, you've been there, you've been behind the scenes and, and with owners and governors. Is there an opportunity here to say, okay, we need to take a deep breath and really re-examine and what, what would you re-examine here if, if if it was up to you in this situation? Well, I, I think you have to look at it a couple things. I think you have to look at it and say, you know, there's no guarantee that 2021 that a season's going to start on time. So I think they have to play out a whole bunch of different scenarios for next year. Um, I think the most important thing they need to do is really sit down with the players and bring them to the table and, and talk about what this can mean. So you know, next year, do you plan for potentially one or two hub cities um, in case, you know, obviously the pandemic goes on and there's not a vaccine yet and people can't gather, which, you know, a lot of the experts are saying it may be, might not be until 2022. So you look at those sort of things. You plan for a regular season uh, as well. But I would sit back and look and say, you know, uh, what are the challenges with our model? Uh, are there new things we can think about? Are there new playoff formats we can think about? Are there new rules we can think about? Um, are there, uh, do we have the right number of games? I'd look at everything um, and try and put that on the table and say, what do younger fans want today? What didn't we do? And I think this does give you the league time. You know, we're in the summer right now. This would be the, usually the middle of the season where you can't focus on anything because you're focusing on the Grey Cup and use that time to strategically think about what you can do. Randy Ambrosi gave an interesting soundbite on Monday and he said we may have to run the league differently and we may need a more cooperative ecosystem. I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. I I don't want to sensationalize it, but it made me think, oh, who's not cooperating? Is like, do, do all the franchises... Gel or are, are, are the different franchises looking out for the league and each other as well as themselves, or, or how, what would what did that mean to you when Randy said that? You know, it, it's hard for me to assess that because you know I've been gone for almost five years now. But you know, I think there's always people at the table uh, that some I, I always loved like the Edmontons and Saskatchewan and the Bombers and some of the teams that were doing financially a little bit better because they had a holistic view of the league and how do we help out um if your if your team is under a little bit more stress it can create an environment like what are you doing for me today but i think that comment probably has to do with 
let's bring the let's bring the 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 owners together let's bring the players together let's bring our sponsors together let's bring our tv partners together let's bring the government together let's bring the owner of the stadiums you know many of those stadiums are government-owned stadiums and i think you have to look at the entire ecosystem what andy what randy is saying uh, and make sure that everyone is you know singing from the same hymn sheet uh, or playing from the same playbook and if you can do that that's where I think they can then start to think about what the future looks like. Yeah. Mark Cohan joining us tonight at Inside Sports, former CFL commissioner, just uh, weighing in on the league not having a, a 2020 season. Uh, I'm going to throw a couple other ones here at you. They're, I mean, they're hypothetical, but I, I think at this point we have to kind of discuss everything. Len Rhodes, who you know well, was on the show last night, and he said there are some leagues where there's one ownership group and each franchise kind of operates as, as a shareholder. Is that at all realistic, and would it be helpful in the Canadian Football League? You know, I've actually thought of that model. Um, you know, and potentially, do you bring in a TV partner in that? So, if you look, you look about when Major League Soccer was started, it really was that central structure. There were a few team owners that owned multiple teams at the time, uh, like Phil Anschutz and the Hunts family and things like that. But I think, you know, over time, is that a model that could work? Um, where you actually create something where you have a central body, um, you have you know executives that run the teams, uh, and then you work out an agreement and how tr- players are transferred, how players are developed, and things like that. So, I think what what Len is basically saying is be creative in thinking about what the model is for the future. Um, and then the question becomes, who could do that? What type of partners you bring to the table? And how does that structure sort of work if you had both community-owned teams now that probably would never want to sell into something, or you have an individual who believes my franchise is worth this, and maybe it's only worth that. So I think there's a lot of uh, you know, deep thinking that has to go into that, but that is is one thing that I think the league could even consider. Yeah, that's that one really interests me. Len also brought up something else, and boy, oh boy, Mark, when you host a talk show, you get the immediate feedback from the listeners, and and uh, this one raised some eyebrows and dropped some draws, uh, dropped some jaws. So Len says the league has to be open to perhaps some sort of. Uh, affiliation or development model with the National Football League. I don't even know if the NFL is interested in having that sort of relationship with the CFL. Len even said if that happened, he'd go to four downs and adopt the American rules. So I don't know if your jaw's on the floor now or not, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like is is there is there a realistic relationship with with the juggernaut known as the NFL for the Canadian League? Well, listen, I, I had a good uh, relationship with their commissioner um, when I came in. It was quite interesting. You know, there had been an existing. Uh, formal relationship between the CFL and the NFL right when I'd come in and it had expired and the owner said go in and renegotiate a, a new deal and at the time I said I don't think we really need to you know we need to just focus on our league not on the juggernaut you know south of the 49th parallel and that was part of the internal discussion I will say when I was involved in building the league I often felt of myself as sort of Captain Canada and sort of 
you got to protect this great Canadian institution. Um, I would not be adverse. Now, that's a little bit different than what Len is saying, where it becomes a development league. I don't think that's the right approach. But I would think it would be interesting to sit down. The NFL is going to go through some major challenges. College sports is going through major challenges now on the football side. And football for the U.S. colleges is 80% of their revenue for these universities. You know, is there... Uh, an interesting collaborative way to bring a lot of different parties to think about what is the, the right model moving forward. But I will tell you, every other league has failed except, uh, you know, except the NFL and the CFL, you know, XFL, the leagues over time have failed. Um, I think, you know, it's worth having discussions, but I think I personally, I, I, I love the three down game and I think that's what makes our product unique and we should continue with that. And Mark, before I let you go, you're the expert on this and, and you always have such great perspective on everything. So, and, and you're talking to a lot of people in Edmonton and Northern Alberta who love the CFL, love the double E or, or whatever team they want to support. So I'll kind of leave it open to you in case I missed anything key or there's just a mess did you think fans need to hear today? You know, I think the most important thing for the CFL is people have been saying, is this the death knell of the CFL? Is the CFL over? And, you know, I sent out a tweet the other day and and I said, this is our league. You know, this league is successful because of the fans. This league is successful because of the thousands of listeners that you have who love the double E or love the Riders or love the Argos or the Tiger Cats. And I think that is why this league will survive. It's because the families that generationally have come back to support it. However, I think the league is at an opportunity now where what do they need to think about that brings in the next generation? What is they need to think about in terms of business models and that? And I think anyone who's looking at continuing to invest in the league can feel satisfied because of our fan base. And, you know, as long as our fan base is there, as long as people continue to love this game, I think the, the league will be around for another 100 years. That is Mark Cohan, former commissioner of the Canadian Football League. A lot of work to do for them going into 2021. Best of Inside Sports on 630 Chet. Hey, it's the best of Inside Sports on 630 Chet. My name's Reed Wilkins. Thanks for checking us out tonight. Amanda Rummery. First of all, kind of a tough situation for her. She had a couple of modified bikes stolen, uh, but we had her on Inside Sports to tell her story. She is uh, the top female Paralympic sprinter in the country, and uh, she was telling us about the really difficult decision to have her left arm amputated at the elbow. When I was 18 years old, I was in an ATV accident, and it resulted in a brachial plexus injury, which is complete paralysis in the left arm. So I had no movement or sensation, shoulder down, and um, that was my dominant arm at that time. So I did have to adapt quite a bit, learn how to write and dress myself, feed myself. It was quite a transition. And then um, I started going to rehab at Burner's Hospital and had some surgeries at the Royal Alex. And the surgeries were a lot. They were very hard on my body. I was covered in scars. They were doing like muscle and nerve transfers. And after two unsuccessful surgeries, I decided to amputate. So it was on my terms. I was um, very happy to do it. I have never regretted my decision going from a paralyzed arm to a cute little nub was the best decision I ever made. Uh, How long ago was this? 
Um, so original accident was July of 2015, and then I amputated in August of 2018. Okay. Well, obviously a big decision. So how, now we will get into your Paralympic career. So obviously you're, you're an outstanding athlete. So I assume you were a high-level athlete even before the amputation? Um, I actually wasn't. So I played recreational basketball, never even played for my high school, got cut from the team. Um, like from tryouts, I never got picked for the high school basketball team. And then I did and compete in track and field. I did like every other kid does in elementary, just goes to the mandatory track and field at the end of the school year um, event. And then after my accident and I recovered from my injuries, I started researching what opportunities were out there for people with a physical disability, what para sport was. And there was quite a few winter sports in Edmonton, but I like clubs, and I wasn't interested in that. And then finally, out of the Stedward Center in the University of Alberta, uh, there was a track and field para-athletic group. Oh, cool. Okay, so was it... Was it, because uh, you mentioned your arm was paralyzed, was it uh, difficult to run with the paralyzed arm? Did you have to do anything to sort of, like, keep it tight to your body? How did that all work? Yeah, I did. So um, I actually found an amazing company somewhere in Asia, I think Singapore. They made these um, slings for people with brachioplexus injury, and it was an athletic sling, so I could even swim in it. I ran in it, and it was amazing, but it was obviously still an inconvenience every time I wanted to take off a layer or uh, putting my number on my bib um, for my like racing attire to go around the sling. It was always a little annoying, so it was much easier to just amputate for okay. that reason and many others right okay well so well that's cool so then you started uh you joined the club and you started sprinting and when did you start getting really good and we should mention and we'll get more to this i mean you 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 would you would have been going to tokyo had there been uh, paralympics so when did you start to get really really good for lack of a better term yeah um so i started in september of 2017 with my coach megan and it was kind of in at the end of that year so after a full year of training with megan um i had broken the 100 meter record at that time so um things were going well they were definitely snowballing from never running track and then only running track for a year there is obviously less competition in the para world there's just less females running out there with one arm than there is females with two arms not to sell myself short but um if you are committed with para-athletics and you train and you compete, um, you could make it to the top quicker than you would in able-bodied sport, if that makes sense. Well, still, if, uh, if if you're the best in the country at something, <laughs> you're one of the tops of the world. That's uh, that's that's pretty impressive. So, what what uh, how did everything with uh, the pandemic and the pause and the Paralympic postponement? How did that affect your training cycle? Yeah, so it obviously postponed Tokyo 2020, um, which was very upsetting at first, but at the same time, it was actually a relief because all of my competitions in the spring and summer had been cancelled, so I was getting very anxious of how I would even qualify for Tokyo, and not being able to compete, I didn't know where I was at, and my training was also being affected, it was harder to get like weight room access, and it was cold in Edmonton, uh, pretty late in the 
spring, so I wasn't able to get on a track right away. So my training was definitely negatively affected. And so with the Tokyo postponement, um, there was a bit of relief, to be honest. And now as it gets closer to like what would now be Tokyo 2021, um, I'm just hoping that that will happen because they said that they would not postpone the games again. They would just straight out cancel them because then you're going into 2022, which would be the Winter Olympics here. So obviously, the games actually get canceled. I'd be completely devastated. I've been training full time for a few years now and fully devoting myself. So it would be very heartbreaking. But um, I think in life, sometimes there's things that are bigger than sport. And right now with COVID, um, it just would have been way too big of a risk to hold the games at the Olympic Village. Amanda Rummery joining us tonight on uh, Inside Sports, Edmonton Paralympian. She's telling you uh, a little bit about her journey over the last few years. Amanda, you sound like a very uh, upbeat and energetic person. What can you tell me about the the mental side of uh, of dealing with uh, with an injury and then ultimately having having to make a decision about having your arm amputated? You're speaking about it very matter of factly and very logically, and and you're I can tell you're obviously passionate about your your sprinting career. Um, like, have you been that good at handling everything this whole time, or how has that side of it been? To be honest, um, I, I have been pretty positive through it all. I was raised that it is what it is. You can't change the past. Um, kind of tough love. So when my accident happened, I was continually told by the surgeons and the doctors that I would regain mobility and sensation in my arm and hand. So when that wasn't the case and my surgeries were unsuccessful of course that was upsetting but um i knew that everything happens for a reason and that i was chosen to go through my accident and there was like two friends were on the quad with me and i um i was one driving so i'm very thankful that the paralyzed arm uh, happened to me instead of that but at the same time i look around sometimes at people and I'm glad that this happened to me instead of them just because I've made the most of it and I'm very thankful to have found track and I always look forward to going to practice and to competing and it's really given me a purpose and something to work towards and created my dream of representing Canada at Tokyo 2020. Well, I, I, I got to say, and I mentioned, um, you know, when I started reading about your store today, I, I first looked at your Instagram account and, and I noticed your bio and I read that off the top of the show and I yeah. thought, well, you must have a sense of humor. And then I noticed um, when you marked the uh, one year anniversary of the amputation on Instagram, you wrote happy birthday nub so i thought okay this young lady has uh has an interesting approach there there's there's you you, it seems like you're not the type of person you don't talk about what you you can't do you talk about what you can do and what you're going to do yeah absolutely i yes and i do treat my nub kind of like a real human i've named it all my friends and family address it by nub um we did celebrate its second birthday this past august um but yeah i definitely make the most of every situation and i'm very thankful that track has brought amazing opportunities my way i was able to make my international debut in lima peru last august at the para pan american games and then again at 
at the 2019 World Para Athletic Championships in Dubai. So seeing places like Peru and Dubai is absolutely amazing. So yeah, I'm thankful for everything that's come my way because of this. Okay, and are you the Canadian champion, the 100, the 200, and the 400, or what's the I, latest? I am, yes. Awesome, so, okay. 200 is my favorite event, though. It's uh, my highest world ranking. So in para-athletics, you usually look more so at your world ranking. So I was about 12th in the world in the 400 meter. Uh, Amanda, I, I don't know if you ever listened to the show, but uh, you're quite a bit younger than me. Do you, do you Have you heard of a band called Def Leppard? Yes, of course. Okay, so the their drummer, drummer the drummer doesn't have a, a left arm, uh, and and when and somebody texted this in to remind me, Dave, who's a big Def Leppard fan as as well, and Rick Allen's the drummer's name, and he said after his injury and amputation, he had to relearn how to balance. Did you have any of that sensation? Um, relearning how to balance, I I don't remember. I don't think so. I've always been a huge yogi, so I go to yoga like three to four times a week, and I find my balance is quite good. Okay. And I kind of, right. yeah. Because I never, I don't have nerves in my left side now because of how the accident happened. I had complete root avulsion. So I've been very fortunate to never experience phantom limb pain. I did initially at the accident for a few months post, but I do not have it chronic phantom limb pain like most amputees do. So maybe balance would have something to do with the nerves. I'm not sure. Man, real inspiration. That is Amanda Rummery, and this is the best of Inside Sports on 630 Chad. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.